0: This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Hey, good morning everyone. Really good to see all of you here today and uh, it's a really good passage that we're looking at. So let's go to God to ask Him to help us to understand His Word and to really reflect on it deeply. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Uh, Dear Father, as we come before you today, we thank you once more for the book of Ecclesiastes and how it challenges us in so many ways. And we just pray that this morning we will be able to be challenged once again, that you help us to really ponder on what your word says through the teacher. And we pray for all these things in Jesus Christ. Amen. Now Christianity is different from other religions. So in other religions, you seek to work your way to heaven. Right? You're doing all the hard work to make your way up to heaven. But for Christianity, we don't do the work. Jesus does all the work. He dies on the cross. He pays for our sins. He brings us to heaven. And as a result, as Christians, we change our behavior, not so much because we are working our way up to heaven, but rather we change because we are becoming what we already are, heavenly people. We are trying to reflect in our lives our heavenly reality of being saved in Jesus Christ. Now part of the problem, uh, as uh, I was talking to someone on the the diabetes uh, talk the other day, and I was talking to someone at this uh, wedding yesterday as well, is where Christians don't seem to be any different than they were before, and after they were saved it's almost as if you, if you put the picture right the before salvation and after salvation picture they look exactly the same now why is it that people don't seem to change before and after salvation well today in the passage I think we have the answer so in verse, chapter 5 verse 1 we're going to go through there's lots of text right so you, you really need to follow with me in your, in your Bibles It says in verse one, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they that they do wrong. Now, here in this passage, right at the very beginning, we see something very different from what we've been studying Ecclesiastes so far. Because from chapter one to four, it's all about life under the sun, right? Life under the sun. It's all about the study and observation of life under the sun. But here in chapter 5 verse 1, something strange happens. Because for the very first time, God comes into the picture. And not just God comes into the picture, it is the life of the person with a relationship with God coming to the picture. And also, the person with a relationship with God going to the temple to worship God. And here, it tells the person, the worshipper, to guard their steps, to be very careful when they go before God in the temple, to be very watchful and mindful as they go to meet God. And here, there are two types of people in view. Okay, I like the book Ecclesiastes because it really makes you think and consider and reflect. Right. So there's a lot of implied difference between the two people. Okay, so the next slide is quite helpful. Okay, so I, I did this to help your thinking along right so the implication is there isn't it so there are two types of people one their primary motivation for going to the temple is what to listen to god to listen to god to consider what god wants them to do and then logically to obey what god wants them to do the second person their primary motivation is to go to the temple to offer sacrifice, that is what they want to do, they don't want to tick the box, they want to say, okay I've done my part, I've, I've offered the sacrifice and then I can go home. God says that the person who goes to the temple just to offer the sacrifice is a fool, they're offering the sacrifice of fools because God is not happy with them because they do wrong. Because they go to the temple, they're not really listening to what God wants them to do. They think, okay, if I, give a, if I do the work of giving the sacrifice, I've done what I need to do, I can go home happy, God is happy with me. But no, right? God actually wants you to go to the temple to listen and to obey. Now, obviously, we are not the temple here. Right? This is not, okay, for those of you who think this is the temple, this is the childcare. Okay? No, this is not the temple. All right, This is just... As another pastor has once said, this is a glorified rain shelter. Right? We meet here so that you know we can have air and we can uh, sing songs, we can pray together, we can read the Bible, listen to the Bible, preach. But this is not the temple. Right? God is not here. I mean, in the sense, God is everywhere. God is within us through the Holy Spirit. But this is not a, a special holy place. But the principle of what we read here is still the same. When we come to God in church, some people have the mistaken idea that as long as I come to church on a Sunday, I can tick the box, I've done my part for the week, I, I feel good about myself. I, I've sung the songs of worship, I've prayed the prayers, uh, you know, I, I, what else does God want me to do? But according to the passage, God wants us to come, to listen, to listen, and to logically to obey, and to do right. So I was reading this book last week and I can't remember someone gave this to me many years because you know sometimes people give me books it's been so long since someone gave me this book that it, the insides are all browning right? so I started reading it and I realized oh, man I can't remember who gave it to me but it's a good book. And in this book uh, Christopher Ash who actually has come to this church before makes three points about listening to God. And what does listening to God entail? He says do I understand Okay, so big chim words, right? Didactic. Who knows what that means? Do I understand right, the meaning of God's word as I listen to it? Is it affectional? Like, you no, know, affection. Do I feel it? Do I feel the force of what God is trying to say as I'm reading it? And lastly, is it volitional? Am I willing to obey it? Is my will engaged with the text of what I listen to? And that's what I think God is saying here. He wants the person to come before Him, to listen, to understand, to feel, and to obey in will. Now, um, I keep using these words, relatives. right? Someone mentioned to me, how come i got so many relatives? Huh? It's because I don't want to tell you who these people are. I right? don't want to embarrass them. I've got this relative who um, used to say to me, yeah, I used to evangelize this person. They say, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. You know why? Because I still get my church newsletter every month. I'm still in the membership role. That's why I get the newsletter. I'm a Christian. I have another relative in Malaysia. Uh, this time it's uh, my, my wife's side, so it's okay. And then, uh, you know, this relative, every Sunday, they will go to church. Without fail, they will go to church. They will even go to the Tamil service. They're Chinese, okay? They will even go to the Tamil service because I have been to church. I can't understand whatever they're preaching, I can't understand whatever they're doing, but I have been to church. See, this is not Christianity, right? This is churchianity. I've been to church, I've done my part for the week, I put my money in the offering bag. Okay. But God says, that is a sacrifice of fools. That's foolish behavior because what God really wants is for you to come before Him and to listen and to do good and to obey. Now here in verse 2 to 7, the the teacher then goes on to one aspect of listening and obeying and doing right. And in verse 2 to 7, it is about the doing of making vows Okay, so let's read what it says. Verse 2 Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven, and you are on earth. So let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares, and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow, it is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. Do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. So in verse 2 to 7, we see that there is a direct application of listening and obeying. And here, he says, is within the context of making vows in the temple, right? making oaths, making promises before God. And there are two specific uh, warnings which are given. One is, don't be quick with your mouth. Don't be hasty to utter anything before God. Right? Don't, don't, don't make rash promises before God but seriously consider your vows to make sure that you can keep your vow. And the second warning is, if you make a vow, make sure you keep it. Right? Like someone said in my Bible study, say what you mean, and mean what you say. Because God will come before you and will demand for you to fulfill your vow. So if you look here in verse 6, right, it says, do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Actually in verse 6, um, the the exact translation is, the messenger of God comes before you. So it could be an earthly messenger, which is the temple messenger, or an angelic messenger, you know, a heavenly messenger. God comes to you to say you promised something, but now is the time to fulfill it. But then if you do not fulfill it, then God says it is, a foolish behavior. It is a mistake. Now, in verse 7, right? it is like the catch-all statement. Right? The catch-all statement is, uh, actually this is the older translation, but here it says, fear God. You must fear God. If you fear God, if you live in awe of God, then you will listen to God and you will keep your vows and your words will be few before God. Now this makes sense, right, because if you realize who you are before God, that's what it says in verse 2, right, the next slide, if you recognize that God is in heaven and you are on earth, then you will be a lot more cautious with making promises before God. You'll be a lot more cautious with your words. Uh, It's like someone said in my Bible study as well, it's like, you know, imagine if you're before someone very powerful, like your boss, or the Prime Minister, or I don't know, somebody else. You'll be very careful making promises. Right? You'll be very careful of your words. You won't just rashly make uh, promises that you're unable to keep. In the same way, when we are before God, make sure that you do not speak rashly, but when you do make your promises, keep them. Now, as Christians... Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, actually expands and broadens and widens this whole principle of meaning what you say and saying what you mean. So, Matthew chapter 5, right? it says, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. But simply let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So here we have a very narrow application of the vow. But as Christians, God actually tells us through Jesus that we are to not make vows, but to, to speak the truth at all times. Now this ties in very well with fearing God, living in awe of God, because if God is in heaven and we are here, God sees everything, right? When we make a promise, when we say something, we have to keep it. That is what God expects of us. That's what... We are to be as heavenly people, as saved people. Now I know for myself, one of the things I struggle with is, I've made promises in the past which I've struggled to keep, and uh, especially to my wife. And I'm very thankful for a forgiving wife who forgives me and says, okay, I, I, I rescind your promise. <laughs> right? But you know, it's like when you say to someone, I will pray for you. And you, know, do, you do you say that to people? Yes, I will pray for you. Nobody knows right whether you really prayed for that person or not. Only God knows whether you prayed for that person or not. but if you say it, then you must do it right you, you you must mean it that's what God is saying here when you when you say something, mean it, do it and I guess as a Christian, all the more, if our yes is our yes and our no is our no, then we would be very. Cautious in making promises that we cannot keep. You know, there are some people who, uh, uh, I have a relative of mine, right, who, you know, always makes all these promises. Yeah, 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 you can come over, will you come over to our, come and stay with us, come and stay with me, or yeah, yeah, you know, do this, I'll take you around or something. But then you find they're not really sincere. Right? There are lots of people who you meet in, in, the, in, this, in this world, right? They'll say things like, yes, we'll catch up. But you know, actually in your mind, you know never, they never want to catch up with you again, right? It, it, these are just the way people speak. But, as Christians, we are not to speak like that. When we say something, we must mean what we say. We must be serious about fulfilling the things that we are saying. Now, in verse 8 to 9, um, the teacher moves on. It's almost as if, from verse 1 to 7, God comes into the picture because the teacher is kind of like he's got a bit fed up with life under the sun but then in verse 8 he goes back to looking at life under the sun so in verse 8 he picks on a very strange topic right if you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied do not be surprised at such things for one official is eyed by a higher one and over them both are others higher still. The increase of the land from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Now, if you're using the ESV translation, it may be slightly different, but the principle is the same. Basically, he's looking at the topic we looked at last week, which is the love of money, greed. And he looks at it from a societal perspective, from a big perspective, not an individual perspective. And he says he looks at life under the sun and he sees oppression, he sees injustice, he sees rights denied. And why is this happening? Because the officials, civil authorities, are looking out for themselves. That's what it means, right? They're looking out, they're eyeing one after another, but they're not eyeing it for the sake of the people, but for their own selfish means, right? And as a result, the poor are oppressed and there is injustice and there is oppression. Now I think that's very true. I mean obviously we live in Singapore, or you know, we, we, we live in a, a very uh, clean country where there isn't that, this sort of level of oppression. But actually in many countries around the world, you see injustice and oppression and rights denied. So as a result, there's oppression of the poor, and their rights are denied, and people are, I guess, given injustice as a result. Now, this is from a, a macro perspective, a societal level. But then in verse 10, he, he looks at the societal level, then he goes down to the individual micro level. Right? He says, you know, this is the effect of greed and the love of money in society, it's oppression and injustice. but from an individual micro level, it hurts, not just in a societal level, but it hurts the individual. Because in verse 10 it says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. So if you look at your outline, you'll see the first point is there is no satisfaction, right? No satisfaction. Actually, I should have given you your uh, crossword puzzle today, but it's okay, I didn't. right? But, that's the point of the first one, right? If you love money, if you love wealth, you are never satisfied. Now, uh, many years ago, there was a very good movie that I watched called Wall Street. You, you can still watch it. It's a very excellent movie. It's a classic. Uh, and the classic... Um, uh, quote from this movie is uh, "Greed is good," right? There's this is very, very s- strong speech in the middle of the of the movie, where the the the, the main protagonist Gordon Gecko says, you know, greed is good, greed builds up America, things like that. But at the, towards the end of the movie, uh, his uh, his the guy is training out Bud Fox, right? Basically, has enough of it, right? He says, you know, how many boats do you need to water ski behind? You know, when is it enough? When when do you actually end? When does this end? And he says, you know, it's never enough. It's never enough. And I think it's very true, isn't it? Because if you love money and you love wealth, you never there's never enough of it. You always want more. Uh, It's like there's a survey in Australia where actually today, you know, Australia is a very wealthy country, and today. the real average household income of uh, of Australians is three times more than in the 1970s, but even then, people say that they feel poorer than they did in the past. And also, uh, you can see some newspaper articles where in Australia, even people on welfare feel that the necessities of life are a mobile phone, a dishwasher, a clothes washer, as well as an LCD TV, right? So you're welfare, but these are the necessities that you need, right? So you, you know, you never end in terms of what you feel is enough in your life. So, it's this attitude of affluenza, right? You know, where you, you want more and more wealth. It never ends. But not only is there no satisfaction, but in verse 11 it says, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? Now, What it's really saying here is that, if you love wealth, if you love money, and you spend all your time toiling for it, you never really get to enjoy it. Um, I've spoken to some very successful people, and uh, they they spend all their life working, and they have really magnificent houses. But, you know, it's quite sad, because the only people who really enjoy the house are the maid and the dogs, because they are working so hard, you know, 60, 70 hours, 80 hours a week, that they they never really get to enjoy the things that they've been working for, because they keep striving and striving and striving. So here it says, uh, I prefer the ESV translation, right? It says, you can sort of see in the NIV as well, it says, you know, when the goods increase, they increase who eat them, but what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? And I think there's a good contrast here between the appetite where you actually consume with your mouth compared to what you see with your eyes. So, in a sense, if you, if you keep striving and toiling, you can only see what you gain. But other people end up eating them right, and, and consuming it. But not only is there no satisfaction and no enjoyment, but there's no rest In verse 12, the sleep of the laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. Now, I think it's very true, uh, this paradox, right? That actually the laborer, because they have nothing to worry about, in a sense because they have got no abundance, it affords them sleep. So someone was sharing in our Bible study of how uh, they were in a bus and they were with a friend who has a lot of worries in life and they pointed to the laborer lying by the roadside sleeping right? you know you often see construction workers roadside workers and like lunchtime they're sleeping next to the road in the, you know, beside all the busy traffic You know, the, the mattress is the cement floor and they're sleeping perfectly fine they said look how can this person sleep right? I can't even sleep at night and the person is sleeping here in the middle of the day and I think that's very true, because in many ways, the more you have, the more worries you can also have. I went to a, 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 a talk, investment insurance talk before, and someone asked a question. You know, they said, uh, how often do you need to manage your wealth? And the investment speaker said, you always have to be actively watching out for your wealth. So if you have all this wealth, you're always thinking about it, like, you know, What's happening? What's happening in terms of the exchange rates? What's happening in terms of other markets? What's happening with President Trump? What's happening with trade wars? You know, it's like you're always worried, and you're sort of thinking about uh, what's you know how much money did I lose last night? You know, what's hap- do I need to move my money here and there? So reflecting on this, I have a friend who is a lawyer, and uh, they said to me, they said you know, uh, the best night sleep I used to get was when I was in national service because in national service all you do is you go out and then you do your stuff and you go to, at the, you know, you finish, you go to sleep, then the next morning you do it again but now he's got so many worries, you know, he's, got, he's thinking about his, all this stuff in his mind he never gets to rest and that's what this passage is saying, that with, with the abundance comes more worries right? they can't sleep Verse 13 to 14 uh, actually brings an even bleaker picture, right? Because I've seen a grievous evil, like it, it physically harms you under the sun. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Now, the first instance here is where the wealth gets hoarded, and you get more and more wealth. But again, this wealth actually harms its owner. So, I think my kids read this book uh, uh, many years ago. I found it in, in my kids' uh, you know, reading thing. And it's by this guy called John Steinbeck, right? It's called The Pearl. I don't know if any of you remember. Okay, some of you are nodding your heads. Okay, so at least I don't have to explain all over again. And it's about this uh, story about this guy who finds a pearl the size of a seagull egg. And he thinks that this pearl is going to give him joy and wealth and, and, and a great happiness. But the, the tail. Oh, actually, you can click some more. Eh? The tail actually leads to the conflict and the, 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 the disintegration of the relationships that he has because of this great wealth. And at the end of the day, he throws the pearl back into the sea. Because of the harm that it has caused to his family and the relationships in his wider extended family. Because you know when you come, it's like a lottery winner. You know you read about people who who earn, win lotteries, right? They, they they want to be anonymous. They don't want their neighbors to know. Because everybody wants money from them. And if you say no, they become unhappy with you. Or, you, you know, it's like when you have all this money, now you've got all these worries. What do I do? Do I give more to one person, less to one person, you know... If you read the stories of some of the sports stars, right, it's like uh, they, they fall out with their parents because their parents want them to buy houses or invest in schemes, but they don't want to, then their parents get unhappy with them. Their siblings are also similarly unhappy with them. So in the same way, it says here this wealth is hoarded, but actually it doesn't bring joy and happiness. It actually physically harms its owners. But what is a grievous evil? This grievous evil, grievous is like hurtful, right? Really painful evil, is that when wealth is lost through some misfortune. Now, it's such an irony because if it's developing this ongoing uh, logic, right? Then you worry about your wealth, you hoard your wealth, you're not satisfied, you can't sleep, and then through it all, finally your worst nightmare comes true. You lose. Your fortune. Uh, one of the richest per- people I ever knew uh, was a, a friend of my father's, and he owned a shopping center. Not a small shop, right? The shopping center, okay. And uh, he had a, a beautiful house. A really, he had a tennis court. He had a swimming pool. He had an indoor garden. Okay, people have gardens outside the house. He had an indoor garden built inside the house. He invested in, in, in some business, even though he was well into his retirement age, and he lost all his money. His wife had to go back to work, and they had to live in a rented apartment. And he was a, a broken man. He was really a broken man. And I think it's worse, isn't it? If, if, you were, if you didn't have all your life, then you'd kind of be happier. But if you had a lot, and you lost it, then it would be a grievous hurt, right? Because you had so much and now you have nothing better that you didn't have to begin with but in verse 15 it goes on to speak of the i guess the uh, the 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 lack of permanence that wealth gives you everyone comes naked from their mother's womb and as everyone comes so they depart they came. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. What do they gain? Since they toil for the wind, all their days they eat in darkness, with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Now here it speaks of the final futility of the chasing of wealth this insatiable greed for more because he said, "Oh, you got so much but what can you take with you when you die nothing in your hand can you take you know it's like you can have so much but when you die naked you came into the world naked you go out of it, right? it, it someone was telling us this story in the Bible study about how someone in China I think Buried their father in a in a in a Lexus, not the paper Lexus, but a real Lexus, also Mercedes Benz, right? But that's silly, right? Because you can't drive your Lexus to heaven, right? It's it's is there in the ground with your father, and he's he's dead there. And this is what this passage is saying is like it's a tragic picture, and I think it's summed up in the last verse in verse seventeen, right? Oh, okay, so it's it's, it's chasing after the wind, right? Okay, okay, next slide. He says, you know. It's like you spend your life, in verse 17, in darkness, right? You, you're, you're, you're frustrated because you want more and more and you can't enjoy it. You're stressed and you're anxious and you're full of affliction. You, you, you're hurting yourself with it and you're angry because at the very end of it, all of this wealth you cannot take with you. Now, if the teacher would end here, this would be a very bleak picture. But verse 18, God comes into the picture again, and like this ray of sunlight comes into this darkness. This is what I've observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and to be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life before God, because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. Now I want you to see that there's this great um, change in the mood and the tone of what the teacher speaks about, now, he says, you can eat and drink and be happy. God gives possessions and wealth for you to enjoy. But how come you can now enjoy it when in the past you couldn't? It says because you accept what you have as a gift. This is, the, you notice the repetition. This is your lot in life. Right? God is giving you X amount. Be happy with the X amount you have. Right? don't be insatiable in your greed and your striving for more and more because this is your lot. Enjoy your lot in life. God gives you, it is a gift of God that God has given you these positions. Enjoy them. Find satisfaction in the work that God has given you. But don't make wealth and money your God to be striving after, to be chasing after for ultimate security and enjoyment because it's never there. Because ultimately... Like one pastor asked, right? You know, how many meals can you eat in a day? How many beds can you sleep in at night? How many rooms do you really need in your house? I mean, uh, I have a relative who lives in a big house. They only live in two rooms, right? Basically, the dining room and the bedroom, right? Because dining room, eat, bedroom, watch TV and sleep. You only really need two rooms, right? I mean, even if you wear uh, Giordano, right? I wear Giordano, so it's okay, right? If you wear Giordano or you wear uh, Ralph Lauren, oh, that's not very expensive. Um, Something very expensive, what's the difference? It's still clothes, right? So, what it's really saying is, accept your lot in life. Accept that God has given you this as a gift. And enjoy it as it is. Without the dissatisfaction and the insatiable desire for more and more. So I think there are two major applications that come through this. One is actually, it is not wrong for Christians to enjoy life. You know, there are some Christians who you meet, who you sort of get the idea that somehow being a Christian is to live a really miserable life. You know, like, you know, don't laugh, don't smile, be miserable. That's what it means to be a Christian. No, that's not what this passage is saying, right? It says... Oh, uh, can you call it up again, Leonard? Sorry. Right? Eat, drink, be, be happy, find satisfaction in your toil. We are not ascetics, right? We are not people who say, uh, you know, the good things in life we shouldn't be enjoying. Yeah, we, we can eat and drink and enjoy and find satisfaction in our toil. It's just that as Christians, we do not pursue these things as our gods. And that's the second application, I think. That we are not slaves to wealth and money we do not chase after them the way the world does right? because we recognize that wealth and money do not ultimately give me security, enjoyment, satisfaction in life they are not the ultimate in this world and that's why Jesus says right, to his disciples next slide we read this for our uh, responsive reading no one can serve two masters either he will hate the one or love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other, you cannot serve both God and money. Right? So, money, wealth, possessions are either a gift from God for you to enjoy, and God is God, or you slave for the God, money, wealth and possessions. But at the end of the day, it is a foolish way of living. It's a foolish way of living, says the teacher. Because if you look at the contrast between verse 17, the next slide, and what it says there in verse 15 to 18 is, if you slave for money, you live in darkness. You're full of dissatisfaction. You never have enough money. You never have enough possessions. You live in affliction. You hurt yourself. You hurt yourself when you have it. You hurt yourself when you lose it. And you, you feel angry when you lose it. You feel angry that it doesn't give you what it promises but if you accept your lot as a gift from God, then God fills you with gladness in your heart, day after day. You know, when you give thanks to God in your Lord's Prayer, you know, when you say, Dear Father, thank you for our daily bread. Right? You, you thank God for what you have, for your possessions and your the things that God has given you your toil. So in conclusion, um, I want to share... The story, I'll send it out by email next week so you can read it because it's a really, really good story. It's a very, very short story. It's a story by, I don't know, this is not the short story. This is not the short story. This is a very long story, right? Okay, but it's by this guy called uh, Tolstoy. Okay, and he wrote this story, next slide, called, How Much Land Does a Man Need? It's, it's quite a short story. Alright, so I'll send it out to you next week. And in the story, right, it's about this guy called Pahon. Very rich. He's got lots of land. But he never has enough land. He starts off as a very poor man. He gets more and more and more, and more land. He, he gets, he's a vast estate of land. And he's old already. But he eyes his neighbor's land. He wants more land. So the neighbor uh, comes to him with an offer one day. He says, okay, look. I'll give you as much land, I'll sell you as much land as you are able to walk in one day. Right? So, you know, pounds thinking, he can't sleep, he wants that land, he wants that land, right? So, anyway, so the next day, he, he wants more and more land. So he goes bigger and bigger, and bigger the circle. And then finally, at the end of the day, he gets to, he gets to that point, right? But he dies. Right? So, at the end of the story, there's this very profound statement, right? Since his servant, uh, town Servant, picked up the spade and dug a grave long enough for horn to lie in and buried him in it, six feet from his head to his heels was all he needed. Right? So that was the question of this, how much land does a man need? Six feet. That's all he needed. Because that's all he needed to be buried in. Right? Okay. So I think, in a sense, uh, this story. Uh, it's actually a very profound reflection of if your life is shaped by the love, the insatiable love for more and more wealth and money, you will never have enough. You will never find satisfaction. You will never find rest. You will never find joy. You will never enjoy it. But if you recognize God and God's gift to you of the things that you have, then God gives you and allows you at the same time, the gladness of heart to enjoy the things that He's given you. But if you keep striving for more and more and more, you will never be able to enjoy the possessions that God gives you. So I hope that as we look at this passage, as we come to just this last part, it's really a reflection on our own lives to turn away from the attitude of this world where it says, you know, the, the person with the most, most toys wins, right? No, it doesn't work that way, here. Right? You still die, you can't bring your toys with you. But to actually see and put wealth, money, riches and possessions in its right place. That it is a gift of God to enjoy, but it's not your God, it's not your idol, it's not something you run after. Uh, but recognize that it is a gift of God for you to enjoy. It's nothing wrong to enjoy it, but it's not your God to run after and to chase after insatiably. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, We really want to thank you for the really deep and profound teaching of uh, Ecclesiastes today. That as we come to church today, we will listen. We will understand. We will feel in our heart the impact of what you are saying. And we will change our, our will in our hearts. And particularly in terms of speaking the truth, we will speak the truth and let our yes be yes. And our no be no. And uh, dear Father, help us also to see the emptiness of the insatiable love of money, of wealth, and of greed. That there is no satisfaction, there is no enjoyment, there is no rest. Uh, We grievously hurt ourselves, and uh, in the end we may even lose uh, the things that we chase after so fervently. And we cannot bring it with us when we die. But, dear Father, help us to see that the gifts that you've given us, our wealth, our riches, our possessions, our jobs, must be put in its right place, that they are your gifts, and that you are our Creator and our God. And that finally, as we worship you, we can give thanks to you for the things that you've given to us. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busydc.sg.